Turn in your Bibles, if you've not done so already, to 1 Kings chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom incarnate. He didn't just make wise decisions. He didn't just say wise things, but he himself is wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1.24. Now concerning the subject of wisdom, Jesus, who is wisdom incarnate, said this in Luke 7.35. He says that wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children, or as it says in the NIV, Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Well, what does that even mean? Well, in part, what it means is the way that you know whether or not a person is actually wise is to look at their life and to look at their decisions, their choices, their priorities, their, their strategies, observe what they have decided to do and how things have turned out, and then based upon how things have turned out, you know whether or not the person is wise. Wisdom is justified by all her children. A few weeks ago, I was in Manhattan with my wife and my daughter, and we were in the middle of the island, and we had a decision to make concerning whether we would drive home going north to the RFK Bridge or we would go south to the Queensboro Bridge, and the GPS said, you should go north. And I said to myself, I think I'm smarter than the GPS. I'm going to go old school. I'm going to go south. And as we were inching, and I mean literally inching our way toward the Queensboro Bridge, I did a U-turn, and I turned to my wife and my daughter, and I said, I was wrong. I am wrong. I made a bad decision. I was not right. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, in 1 Kings, we read of a very wise king, the wisest of kings. In chapter 1, Solomon is anointed as king, and he replaces his father David. In chapter 2, Solomon's kingdom is established. And then in the first half of chapter 3, the Lord approaches King Solomon, and he says, you can make a request. You can ask for anything you want. And what does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom so that he might rule God's people. And then God says to him, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, did God deliver on that promise to make Solomon wise? Did he make Solomon wise? Well, our text today demonstrates that indeed he did make Solomon wise. The the story that we're going to be looking at today is the story of the smothered baby and the two prostitutes. This is an illustration of the fact that God made Solomon wise. Now, oftentimes we unwisely deem people to be wise based upon their age. Well, you do know that there are people who are old fools, don't you? There's a lady in our church, and she is prematurely gray, and for years people have been going to her and asking her for advice because she looks wise, but she gives the worst advice. (laughs) Or their education, or because other people say that they are wise, or because they themselves claim to be wise, and Jesus says, no, really, the only way that you can actually tell whether someone is wise is by looking at their decisions. 
Wisdom is justified and vindicated and proven right by all her children. And the story, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but I'm going to read in just a moment, the story of the two prostitutes and the smothered baby, it really proves just how wise Solomon really was. The more difficult the riddle, the more opportunity one has to prove how wise they are. The heavier the weight, the more opportunity you have to prove how strong you are. And this situation, which was put in front of him, was impossible. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. I am going to go through the text verse by verse, and then I'm going to give you seven points of application. And so that's a lot to do in a short period of time. Uh, Let's bow now before the Lord and ask him for wisdom. Father in heaven, it is our delight today to own Bibles and to be able to read. Lord, it is our joy today to gather together to read the Bible and then to allow your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And now, Father, as I stand in front of this church today, I pray that I would be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that I would be enabled to explain it accurately. I pray, dear Lord, that you would give the people an interest in what is being said. I pray that they could comprehend it. But more than that, dear God, I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, to move our hearts and to change our lives, Lord, that we might be different when we leave here. Lord, I'm asking that you would do something unusual this morning. Lord, I'm asking today that you would please Lord, work in our lives that we would walk out of this church today different than we are right now. Lord, you alone can do that, and I pray, dear God, that you would use your powerful gospel to accomplish that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, let's just go through it verse by verse. We're going to start reading in verse 16. It says, then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Let's just stop right there. From that verse, we are able to detect that Solomon is a man who is humble and he is a man who is merciful. First of all, he is humble in that he is now with the lowest in society and he is hearing their case. Uh, This is a man who will one day teach the queen of Sheba, and people will come from all over the world to learn his wisdom, but at this point, he has two prostitutes in front front of him, and he is willing to listen to them. Another thing that we know from this is that he is a very merciful man because under the law of Moses, technically, he could have had these two women stoned and the baby could be put up for adoption. But he's merciful, and he is humble. And now the the heart of the story, beginning in verse 17 through 21. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day, after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And now notice what happens here. In three different ways, the author uh, reiterates the words of the woman in order to indicate that there were no witnesses. Three times over. Here we go. And we were alone. Uh, There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And so this is a case of she said, she said. There are no cameras. There are no witnesses. There are just two women in a house who are in the same bed. Only we two were in the house. 
And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. That is not my baby. Now, again, the biggest dilemma we have here is that there are no witnesses. It is one word against another. You, there's no bracelet around the baby's wrist to prove who the baby is. There is no DNA test that can be run. There were no fingerprints that were done at the hospital. In fact, there was no hospital. There's no physical evidence to help solve the riddle. And so get the picture. There are two ladies who for obvious reasons are temporarily out of work. Uh, they are sharing a house. Both of the women are sleeping in the same bed and one of the babies is asphyxiated. Uh, furthermore, there were no lights. It is completely dark. There's no night light. There were no street lights outside to bring in light from the window. Uh, the babies are the same age, only three days apart. The babies are the same gender. They're probably the same size. And in the dark, they look the same, same in appearance. And when she first discovers the dead baby, she probably thought that it was hers. My son Parker is 28 years old, and when he was born in Columbia, South Carolina, I was speaking to a nurse who at the time was elderly. And I asked the question, uh, because I, I wanted to make sure we were bringing the right baby home. I said, does it ever happen that you send the wrong baby home uh, with the wrong parent? She said, yes, it happened once many, many years ago. We got two babies mixed up and they each went home with the wrong parent. And I said, well, how did you resolve the problem? She said, well, we got the correct baby and put him in a car and we drove to the house of the, where he should be living and we went and we knocked on the door and because the people were first time parents, they didn't know what the proper protocol was and we just told the mother there uh, that it was our custom to check the baby out a few days after birth and so she gave us the baby and we took the baby to the car for a few moments and we switched outfits on the babies. <laughs> And then we took the right baby back to the right mother, and then we returned the right baby back to the right mother. No harm, no foul. Let me just give you a point of application. It's not going to help with your sanctification in any way, but just take a good look at your kids and make sure that they are, they are yours. So the woman awakes in shock and horror and in the daylight, she says, this is not my baby. Now, the guilty mother disputes this and gets into an argument with the king in verse 22. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, no, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. Now, I don't have any evidence of this, but I don't think 
that as they were disputing in front of the king, that they had lawyers and that there was proper protocol and that one would wait for the other and just nod politely while one spoke and then give a counterpoint and back and forth. I don't think that that's what happened at all. I think that this was a back alley cat fight. And Solomon steps in in verse 23 and very wisely makes sure that he has all of the information. And then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, your son is dead, and my son is the living one. But wisely here, before he renders a judgment, he makes sure that he understands the facts that are in front of him. Verse 24. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. What you have to understand here is the setting. If, if you go into a courtroom here in Georgia, no one is going to have a sword, but as the king was sitting on his throne making judgments, there would have been a sword, and there would have been a sword very close, very nearby. The reason I say that is these women would not have had much time to decide what, if anything, they were going to do. If you're going to protect the king, there's going to be a sword close by, and it's going to be a big sword, and it's going to be a sharp sword. So the two women would not have had any time to think about this. They could not approach the bench and say, may we please have a recess? They had to think on their feet. Verse 25, notice what it says. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Now here's the key. They don't know whether or not the king is serious or bluffing. If you were to ask me, would Solomon really have had the bailiff slice the baby in half? I would say no, absolutely not. However, you have to understand that kings in the ancient Near East were reckless and they were violent men. If you read 1 Kings chapter 2, you will read that Solomon uh, took it upon himself to have several people killed. And so the point here is she does not know whether or not the king is actually going to go through with this. And she might have thought that the king would be bluffing, but you can't, take, you can't take a risk. If someone points a gun at you, you can't say to yourself, well, I don't believe the gun is loaded, or I don't believe the person would use it. You have to work off of the assumption that the gun is loaded and that the person would use it, therefore you give up your wallet. When the sword is there, and the king has said, cut the baby in two. You don't know what kind of mood he's in. He's a new king. You don't know what is going to happen. And so she had a very short amount of time to think about this and to act upon it. And it is always best, when life and death are on the line, to err on the conservative side. Because once that baby is divided, it is irrelevant. Therefore, the real mom has a tiny window of opportunity to speak, and she does speak in verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because of her, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. You see, the bad mom didn't want the baby 
as much as she wanted her co-worker to be robbed of the joy. I mean, the woman who smothered the baby, did she actually want the baby? Well, I suppose she did want the baby, but more than that, what she was motivated by, as evidenced by the fact that she was willing to let the baby be sliced in two, is that she could not live with her co-worker having the joy of having a living child. Why? Because misery loves company. I'm a New York Met fan. And most of you are brave fans. Congratulations. Listen, I just want to be really honest with you. I know we have a dead team. I know that we will try, but we will never be good. We will always shoot ourselves in the foot. I know that we are never going to be as good as you are, but that really doesn't matter to me. I mean, when it comes to baseball, I do hate you, but I don't hate you as much as I hate that team in our town, the New York Yankees. And so every fall, do I spend my time and my energy cheering for the Mets? No, that's, no, that, that, that's useless. No, I put my energy into cheering against the Yankees. And I will admit, it is driven by selfishness, it's driven by jealousy, it's driven by pride. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were going on a walk with our four-year-old grandson. And as we were walking down a dark street in Queens, it was a, a winter evening, there was a distinguished gentleman who was walking toward us, and he was wearing a New York Yankee baseball cap. And as my wife and I walked past him as good New Yorkers, we said nothing, having nothing to do with the fact that he's a Yankee fan, but that's just what you do in New York. You just walk past people and you don't say anything. And our grandson was trailing behind, and, and, and this little boy, he's got a really good set of lungs. He's got a really loud voice. And all we can hear as we have passed the man is, boo, Yankees, boo. <laughs> I Never been more proud of any of my offspring. <laughs> this woman cannot stand the fact that the other woman is going to have a baby uh, with her, a living baby. It's okay if we both lose, but I cannot stand to see you win. Now, on the other hand, the heart of the real mother said, I don't have to win as long as the baby wins. As long as my son stays alive, that's all I care about. You take the baby. The good mother will always put the interest of her child ahead of her own, even if that mother is a harlot. Solomon's mother, she wasn't a harlot, but she slept with a man that was not her husband. And in chapter 1 of First Kings, it is Bathsheba who goes to David to make sure that Solomon is put on the throne. Solomon understands a mother going to bat for her son. The kingdom was his as a result of what Bathsheba did, and now this woman standing before the king is willing to give the baby up as long as the baby will be safe. Parents, you understand what I'm about to say. Never once in 28 years of parenting did I ever see one of my children hurt and say to myself, I am so glad it is them and not me. I've never said that once. Anytime any of my children have been hurting, what I have said immediately is that I would gladly trade places with them. 
And this is how Solomon wisely, cleverly, brilliantly exposes the truth teller and exposes the liar. Notice the result here in verse 27 and verse 28. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. I love the fact that he says, she is his mother. He's not saying, I have reason to believe that this is the mother. No, definitively, I can say this is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Notice that Solomon's kingdom through this event is further established. Not only is he respected because he is the son of David, not only is he respected because he is the king, but now he is respected based upon his own merits. Israel is in awe of him. And and, and notice, he's not just a clever young man, but it is very evident that the hand of God is upon him. Wisdom is justified by all her children. They are in awe that the wisdom of God is in him to do justice. In other words, people love Solomon because they can see God in him. And God is in him, not with human wisdom, but God is at work in our king. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. Therefore, to God be the glory. Now that is an explanation of the text. In the time that remains, what I would like to do is I would like to give you three practical applications and then four gospel applications. Application number one is that problems arise in families where dads are absent. Fathers when they are not there, create problems for their families. Now, before I break this down, please understand that problems arise in all families, even if dad is present. And sometimes the absence of a father is nobody's fault. It is especially not the fault of the children because sometimes dads die. They have heart attacks. They are in automobile accidents. They go off to war. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm thinking here about the intentional choices that couples make for fathers to be missing from the home. Because we've been told by our society that if mom and dad are not getting along, for the sake of the children, the best thing that you can do is to separate or to divorce. I would say, if that's you today, you're struggling in your marriage, nobody else in the church knows about it, but you've been talking about it, What is best is that you stay together. And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as mom and dad being separated or divorced. I know that this is an extreme case here with two prostitutes living together. However, as we look at the story, there was no man present in the house to protect and defend. You see, God has designed the family for the man to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And God has designed the family for the father to raise the children. 
Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, it doesn't say mothers, it doesn't say parents, it says fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up or raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, raise your children. Why is it that we have bought the lie which society has given us that all things being equal, the best thing to do is just for parents to go in opposite directions. The best thing to do is to stay. Now, I do understand that there are cases where dad does need to leave, when there are cases of abuse. I understand that there are cases where there is adultery and divorce is a definite option. But generally speaking, the best option in a home is where dad is present and dad is active in the lives of his children. And I'm not just talking about divorce or separation, but there are fathers who sleep every night in the same house with their children, and yet they are absent. And so fathers, I would say to you, it's not enough that you sleep in the same home with your children, but you need to be engaged. You need to be involved in their lives, conversations, instructions, expectations. You need to be the one leading family devotions. There needs to be an overall intentional engagement in the lives of your children. You see, there was no man in this house to protect that mother and her baby. So gentlemen, I would say, please step up and take responsibility. Now, perhaps some of you are listening to this, and this is a really sore subject for you. It's a sensitive subject, and, and maybe, uh, particularly among some young men in the congregation this morning, you're saying, this all sounds well and good, but your sermon is just a sad reminder of my absentee father. Well, if that is the case, I sincerely mean this morning that I feel very sorry for you. I, I, I really mean that I do feel very sorry for you. But I also want to say to you that perhaps what I am saying can help you, and by that I mean if God should ever allow you to be a father, be totally committed to your own children involved in their lives, protecting them, instructing them, and leading them in the paths of righteousness. My father never had a father. My dad was born in 1926, six months after he was born, his father left him, and in the 1920s in western Pennsylvania, couples simply did not separate or divorce, and my dad grew up without a father. And yet he was an amazing dad to me and my three siblings. You do not have to see fatherhood modeled in order for yourself to be a good father. Problems arise in families where dads are absent either literally or figuratively. Here's the second point of application, and that is the nature of sin is to shift blame to others. The nature of sin is to shift blame to others. Now here you have a woman, albeit unwittingly, but she smothers her baby in the middle of the night. She tampers with the evidence to make it appear as though someone else is guilty, and this is what we do as sinners. We have trouble taking responsibility. Last year in July on a cruise ship, there was a grandfather who was holding his 18-month-old granddaughter. Now, 
as the video of this is replayed, what you see is he walks over to a railing. He looks over the railing down into the atrium. He picks up his granddaughter, and the first thing he does is he sits her on the railing. And then he stands the child on the railing, and then the child falls to her death. Now, I know that this was not intentional. He didn't mean to do this. And I cannot imagine the grief and the horror that this man feels and that the rest of the family feels. And initially, this man blamed himself. But then the man said, a few months later, you know, I'm colorblind. And that's partly why this happened. I I don't see that as being relevant at all. And then the man came out with a statement and said, they need to make these cruise ships safer. That is completely irrelevant. This woman wakes up on top of a dead baby and cannot live with herself, and so what she does immediately is she takes the dead baby and she puts it beside the other woman. God says to Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. And Adam is responsible for what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Why? Through the sin of Adam. In Adam all die. He is responsible. Eve sins, and then Adam sins, and God comes looking for them, And God's first words to a sinner in Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? He's hiding behind a bush somewhere. And the first words that come out of a sinful man are these. God said to him in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam's response, the first words of a sinner are, The woman, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, uh, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And so it is not my fault, it's Eve's fault. And God, if you want to be technical, it's really your fault because you gave her to me. Blame shifting. In the next verse, God addresses Eve and he asks the question, What is this that you have done? And her response, here we go, first words from a sinful woman, the serpent, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, the devil made me do it. Do you know how rare it is to hear these words when someone is confronted with something that they have done wrong? Here we go. I'm wrong. Period. It's my fault. Period. No explanation, no excuse, no equivocation. I am guilty. 
I mean, think about how much you hate it when others that you know are wrong half-heartedly admit their guilt and then along with their guilt they give an explanation or an excuse and they look for someone to share their guilt with. Or they flat out blame circumstances or they blame others who are innocent. They take the dead baby and they lay it beside the innocent woman. And think how much you hate it when that happens. And so I would say by way of application, the next time you are wrong, and that will probably be today, simply, by, simply respond by saying, I'm wrong. Do not put your dead baby in the arms of someone else. You see, a sure sign of an unbeliever is that they cannot take responsibility for their actions. When, I, when Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God, he stopped blaming others and he says, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. When Peter sees the holiness of Christ, he says in Luke 5, 8, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And if you cannot own your sin, well, then you don't need a savior. You see, those who don't want forgiveness will not get it. And one way that we show that we don't need forgiveness is by shifting our blame to others. Listen to what I'm about to say. This is really important. If the only sins that you are going to be forgiven of are the sins that you own, does it then not make sense that you would fully admit your guilt rather than shifting it to someone else? Do not put your dead baby beside someone else. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The tendency of sinful human beings is to shift blame to others. Here's another practical application, and that is collect as much evidence as you can from both sides before you render a judgment. Solomon hears both ladies out, and then notice what Solomon does. He repeats the case aloud back to them in order to make sure that he understands the facts. Why should we make sure that we understand the facts before we render a judgment? The reason that we should do this is because if you do not understand what another person is saying, you're not actually disagreeing with them, but you're disagreeing with what you think they are saying. And so you need to be able to repeat their case back to them in terms which are acceptable to them. Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states the case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Very simply put, when a matter is brought to your attention, listen, listen very carefully, take notes if you are forgetful, and then after you have listened, you need to say, please let me speak to the other party and hear what they have to say. And then remain objective in your mind, weigh the evidence, and then render a verdict. You see, wise people listen carefully. Solomon was wise. Proverbs 18, 13, which was written by Solomon, he said, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Those are our practical points of application. Let me now bring you four 
gospel applications. Uh, of these four gospel applications, uh, two of them will show continuity with the text, and two of them will show discontinuity. First of all, I want to say the gospel is in this passage, and the reason we know that gospel is in this passage is because Jesus, in John 5, 39, said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. So the Old Testament scriptures do speak to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's our first gospel application, first and foremost. Solomon, as a son of David, rules as a just and wise king. You will remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and says, when you die, there's going to be someone who's going to sit on your throne and he is going to rule in your place. One of your descendants is going to be a forever king. Well, Solomon, as the son of David, made a just and wise judgment. And Jesus, as the true son of David, rules over his kingdom with wisdom and justice. That is to say, Christ will not allow the innocent to be punished, and he will not allow the guilty to go free. He is a just judge. At the conclusion of the matter, looking at Solomon and what others thought of Solomon, they were in awe of him because God was with him. And this is the same conclusion that Nicodemus reaches when he comes to Jesus by night. And the first thing out of Nicodemus' mouth in John 3, 2 is, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How do you know that? For no one could do the signs that you do unless God was with him. And yet, as great as Solomon was, Jesus was greater. Our Lord says in Matthew 12, 42, something greater than Solomon is here. The people were in awe of Solomon, and today we must be in awe of King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, be in awe of him and worship him for his justice and for his wisdom. Here's another gospel application, and it's similar. And that is, in this passage, we see the doctrine of love, uh, loveology. Now, please remember this, and remember this for the rest of your life, and I want the children especially to pay attention to what I am saying right now, and that is this, and that is the one who loves you the most is the one who is willing to make the greatest sacrifice for you. The one who loves you the most is the one who is willing to make the greatest sacrifice for you. You see, the true mother was willing to sacrifice her rights and her relationship with her son so that he could live. And the baby wasn't even aware of this. And in the same way, 2,000 years ago, Christ made the greatest sacrifice. We were completely unaware of it. Why did he make that sacrifice? Because he loves us more than anyone. Dear children of God today, think of the person that you love the most. You do know that Jesus loves that person more than you do. Think of the person that loves you the most. You do know that Jesus loves you more than that person does. 
How do we know that Jesus loves us more than anyone else? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And so as you think about your own heart and your own relationship with the Lord, you simply need to meditate upon the love of Jesus Christ who made the greatest sacrifice for you. I believe that the sole reason why we have such cold hearts is simply because we forget about the love of Jesus Christ. The one who loves you will sacrifice for you and closely associated with that, the one who loves you will speak up for you. And even right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, ever living to make intercession for us. He, right now, like that mother, is speaking up for you. We constantly go astray. We are prone to wander. We are sinning all the time. But you know what he's doing? He is speaking up for us. Do you know why he's speaking up for us? Because he loves us. Dustin, you, you work with the, the teenagers here in this church. If you've done youth work for any amount of time, you know that teenagers are really bad criminals. They leave so much evidence behind. They get caught. Here's one thing that I have learned from being a youth pastor and from being a pastor who has had to deal with youth in the church, and that is that when they get caught, and I'm talking about really caught, I mean, eight by 10 glossy photos, video evidence, DNA, fingerprints, a signed confession. When they get caught, I mean, they are wrong. And it is brought to the attention of their parents. Unless those parents are very mature in Christ, they are going to speak up for and they are going to defend their children. Don't take it personally. That's just the way it works. And let me tell you, Dustin, why that is true. It is because of love. It is because of love. Now listen, the devil would not lose any sleep if you were cut in two with a sword and cast into hell with himself and his angels. He is not going to speak up for you. He's not going to defend you. He's not going to sacrifice for you. He is the accuser of the brethren. He will speak against you. And technically, he's right, because you are guilty. Yet you have one who will speak up for you and one who sacrificed so that you might live eternally, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I simply want you to leave here knowing that Jesus Christ loves sinners. And failure to love him is the most hideous of sins which leaves me with two applications, and they show discontinuity with the text. And the first one is this. It has to do with the mothers. And when I say the mothers, I'm not referring to the two prostitutes. I'm referring to the prostitute who had the living son and Mary, the mother of our Lord. Now think about these two women. Both mothers carried their sons for nine months in the womb. Both of these women knew that their sons were in danger. 
Can you envision what happened in that courtroom as Solomon sat on his throne with the bailiff holding the baby and the sword? I mean, this woman's heart is moved for her living child, and she is crying. And so she's got to do something to rescue that child, and she says, give him to the other woman, and the tears are gonna continue to flow, and the reason the tears are gonna flow is because she is not going to be able to raise that child. Her tears didn't stop flowing, but immediately she hears the judgment that comes from a wise king who is empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and he says, give the baby to the first woman, that is her that is his mother. What has happened? The tears have not stopped flowing, but now the tears are different. Now the baby is handed to her. I mean, moments earlier, the baby was going to be cut in half, and, and then after that, slightly better, she was going to be given to the other prostitute. But now, can you imagine what that woman felt like as she walked out of that courtroom holding that baby? Mary stood at the foot of the cross for six hours. And she watched her beloved son be tortured and die. And not with a sword. A sword would have been merciful. But no, for six hours, he hung upon that cross with nails in his hands and nails in his feet. You know, when Jesus was only eight days old, he was taken to the temple by his mother and father, and they met there a man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon told Mary this in Luke 2.35, a sword, a sword will pierce through your own soul. That prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus hung upon that cross and his visage was marred more than any man. When they got done beating him, he didn't even look like a human being. Did Mary at the foot of the cross think about her precious little baby? One of the things I love about a baby is, is when, you, when, when even at the, 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 the youngest age, you could put your finger out and the baby will grab your finger. But now she looks at that same hand that held hers and it is pierced. And what about a baby's head? Isn't, isn't a baby's head the most precious thing in the world? You, you love to rub it and kiss it. But now there's a crown of thorns that is ground onto the baby's head and her son is hanging there as a bloody mess, bearing the wrath of God for it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. There's discontinuity in this story. Because that sword... Oh, that sword, that's a king's sword. Man, it, it, it's long, it's sharp, it's shiny. Brothers and sisters, please listen to me. When that sword went back into the sheath, it was still shiny. There wasn't a drop of blood on it. The baby went home with his mother. But as Mary stood at the foot of the cross, it was a bloody mess. And the reason why it was a bloody mess is because God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Mary looked at all of it, and Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we might go free. Aren't you glad 
that Almighty God in his justice did not put the sword back in the sheath. But he wielded it against his son so that your sins and my sins might be forgiven. And finally, our last point of discontinuity. The baby was spared, but Jesus was slaughtered. This baby is, is, is like Isaac. You remember Isaac on the altar? Abraham has the knife in the air. He's about to plunge it into his son. The angel stops his hand and, and he looks and he sees the, the ram with ho its horns caught in the thicket. And God says to Abraham, stop, I know now that you love me. Very simple point here. And that is what happened after the ram had its horns caught in the thicket and it was sacrificed. Either Abraham untied the ropes or he cut the ropes. And here we go. Great point of application. Isaac gets up and he walks away free. This little baby, he doesn't know it at the time, but, but he is a part of history. And, and he is carried out of Solomon's courtroom. Now, if this story was so magnificent that 3,000 years later we are talking about it, if this story was so magnificent that the Queen of Sheba heard about it and came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, do you not think that this little boy who was walking through the streets of Jerusalem would have heard this story and he would have said to his friends and he would have, when this story would have been taught in his elementary school, would have said, hey, that's me. <laughs> Here I am. I am free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Why? Why does Isaac go free? Why does the baby go free? I'll give you a better question. Why are you free? It is because God spared not his own Son and that Christ died for our sins. You know, there's some, some beautiful images and types in the Old Testament, shadows. But as beautiful as they are, the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hanging on that cross in love for you, paying for all of your sins, being put in that grave, being raised on the third day, ascending to the right hand of the throne of God, and even right now praying and interceding for you so that you can go free, Isaac, so that you can go free, little baby of a prostitute, so that you can go free, sinner. I would put this challenge in front of you today. Can you think about and meditate and contemplate the deep, deep love of Jesus? And can you acknowledge that you are guilty and that you are wrong? And can you run to this Christ in faith and say, I believe, Lord, I believe that you died in my place. And I believe that you are alive now to speak up for me. I cast myself upon you. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ in this story? May it warm your hearts to love Jesus Christ more and to serve him with all your heart.
Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have had together in your word. Lord, I pray more than anything else that we will see the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, may this love constrain us, and Lord, may your goodness lead us to repentance. God, if there's anybody here today who is not free, Lord, may your powerful gospel, may that person be set free today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.